Well, we have Thanksgiving coming this next week, and we're going to be talking about something today that uh, I hope at the end of the message we're all able to think, um, wow, that is something for which to be thankful and carry that right into our Thanksgiving celebration. But before we go any further, let's pray, shall we? Father God, uh, we are thankful for the fact that we can gather in this room and sing praise to your name. We're thankful for gifted people who lead us and uh, direct us toward you. Uh, We are thankful, God, that we can set aside distractions and and reflect on the fact that we are loved by you and forgiven, that you guide us, you give us truth to ground and to base our life upon, and and, uh, for all of these things we give thanks. We're thankful for this family. We're thankful for the new lives, these little ones that have just come into the world, and we pray over them that there would be uh, spiritual health grown into them, that they would come to know someday the love of Jesus for them. And we pray for those parents. Yes, indeed, Lord, we pray for those parents. As uh, in uh, some cases, uh, they're new parents, and uh, God help them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) That's fair, isn't it? God help them. I mean, if you're a parent, you know. So, okay, you know how stories often begin once upon a time? And uh, the stories we really love usually uh, go on to uh, end, and they got happily, uh, they got married and lived happily ever after, right? I mean, those are the those are the stories we really love. And then in between that once upon a time and and that uh, living happily ever after thing, of course they meet, they fall in love, they get into trouble. Uh, she eats the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat, or uh, the uh, carriage turns back into a pumpkin, I believe, uh, or she pricks her finger on a spinning wheel and goes to sleep for 100 years. And then things, though, have a way of working out. Uh, Snow White eventually marries Prince Charming. Uh, Cinderella eventually marries Prince Charming. And Sleeping Beauty eventually marries Prince Charming. Apparently, that was the most popular name uh, in that era for an heir apparent. But uh, we love stories that have happy endings. In fact, folks that uh, write books or plays or movies or songs, they will tell you that the songs, movies, books, plays, etc. that sell the best are those that end happily ever after. And I say that by way of contrast because we're in a series called People Plus Life Equals Problems. And the truth is, we don't live in a happily ever after world. To be honest, we have to acknowledge that life Uh, is often full of problems. In fact, uh, if you are a Christ follower, uh, one of the key things that God uses in your life, in my life, to grow us up and to make us like Jesus are problems. It's how do we process problems? It's what do we do with stress or pressure or difficulty or challenge? That's just the way God works. Um, Problems are something that you see cropping up all over the place when you read the Word of God. Psalm 88 is an interesting psalm, uh, unlike many, uh, because the psalmist is in a place of dealing with problems. The psalmist in Psalm 88 writes this and says, For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. And it's not just that he's in an awful situation, If you continue reading that particular psalm, the psalmist goes on to lay the blame for his difficulties right at the feet of God. He says, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. 
You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. And the whole psalm actually goes on and on that way. And then it ends this way. It says, you have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. The end. No tidy resolution. There's no uh, happily ever after there. Um, it's kind of an unusual psalm. If you've read the psalms much, you know that often in Hebrew poetry, and in particular in psalms of lament, especially there will be a place in the psalm, and later on uh, we, we started calling these things, it's an Italian word, volta, and what it means is a turning point or a change of tone in a poem. Uh, and it's that place in the psalm where lament oftentimes changes back to trust or back to praise or back to thanks. You know, things are really bad, but I'm going to trust you, God, and trust that you'll work. Things are really bad, but I'm going to hang on to you, God. I'm not going to let go. Things are really bad, but I know you'll hear my prayer. I know that you'll answer. I believe you're there, God, but not here in Psalm 88. Um, I was thinking, um, in most churches, we like to sing happy songs. I like to sing happy songs. I like worship to be celebratory, but life is not always celebratory. Uh, there are very few worship songs, I, in fact, can't really think of any uh, in our day that end with uh, this phrase out of Psalm 88, that the, the darkness is my closest friend. You know, uh, not, many, not many choruses like that. Anybody remember a song from some decades back, uh, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend? You want to sing it with me? We can hum it together. You know, I've come to talk with you again. The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sound of silence. Paul Simon, uh, interestingly enough, um, a Jewish young man. He's uh, expressing something that you find expressed in the Psalms themselves. Sometimes the sounds of silence need to be heard. And a lot of times the sounds of silence come out in questions. Why? Why is this happening to me? How long is this going to continue? How come? Why now? Why this? And that's kind of where we are today in our series. Um, I'm glad we're talking about what we're talking about because this cuts actually, I think, very deeply to the heart of many, many, if not most human beings. We're talking about disappointment and hurt and pain as it relates to marriage, as it relates to divorce, as it relates to singleness. We all have some familiarity with these things. All of us do. We have friends or we have loved ones or maybe it's we ourselves um, that have been through the trauma, the gut-wrenching pain of marriage or separation or divorce or singleness. Uh, some of us have marriages that look really good on the outside. The kind of marriages when people see them, everybody admires, everybody points, oh, look there, there's a couple, look how they get along. Everybody thinks, what a great couple. But what everybody doesn't know is that the good-looking couple hasn't slept in the same room for weeks or months or years. That's really painful. That's a, a silent kind of painful. Uh, I think about a single woman who tells her small group, look, I, I know I am supposed to uh, venerate Jesus because he went through three hours of pain on the cross, but, you know, I've been living for 30 years with the pain of just being single. And I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and, you know, where is God? He doesn't seem to answer my prayer. I think about the widow who, when her husband is ill, you know, she pours her heart out to God. God, just let him be healed. Just let us 
go on together. But God didn't answer that prayer the way she prayed it, exactly the way she wanted it to be answered. I think about children whose one prayer was, God, make our mom, make our dad get back together. But God didn't put their mommy or their daddy back together. I think of a woman who comes to church all by herself week after week after week after week, and her one prayer is, God, would you just let my husband come to know you so that we can share this thing of faith and have so much more in which to be thankful and in which to grow together. But so far, God hasn't answered that prayer, her prayer. And I want to tell you, whatever is going on, uh, whatever your hurt, whatever your disappointment is around this thing of marriage or separation or divorce or widowhood or singleness, I hope that our time together this morning will be challenging, but also be encouraging to you. Uh, Now, maybe none of those categories that I mentioned describes you. Uh, You're married, and all of life is just great. You couldn't be happier with your spouse than you are. Every day is better than the day before. There's better honesty and better humility and better connecting and deeper intimacy, and sex is great. Can you believe he said that in church? I mean, life could not be better. Or you're single and you just couldn't be more grateful that you're single. Thank you, God, that I'm single. I am loving life. I'm making my own decisions. I'm leading my life. Thank you, God. Well, congratulations. If either of those options are you, then this message is not for you. But it's for the rest of us. It's for the rest of us. Because we live in a different world than that. And unfortunately, when we come to church, there's actually a temptation in churches that I think is very great to kind of hide or pretend or be fake as if to say, we're all okay here. You know, don't look too close, but we're all okay here. Life is good. I'm good. We're all good here. Now, ironically, you won't find that same sentiment in the Bible. The Bible is almost brutally honest around this kind of thing. Often it's more honest and raw than church people uh, are willing to be. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at some statements that we we often hear about marriage and about divorce and about singleness, both inside the church and even outside the church and the culture out there. And then I want to ask from a biblical perspective a very simple question. Is that true? Is that true? Uh, And I want to test those statements against the teaching of the Bible. True, false, false. Maybe. And uh, here's the first statement I want to dive into with you. Statement number one, if you find the right person, marriage is actually easy. What do you think, true or false? Wow, a lot of poorly married people here. Okay. (laughs) Uh, You know, I would have to agree. I I think that's a false sentiment. It's a It's a sweet sentiment, but probably a false one. A lot of times there's just this notion that someplace out there is this person who's my soulmate. And I'm having some difficulties in my marriage right now, so I must have missed my soulmate. You know, there's that kind of that idea. There's one person who's right for me that God has for me. And when I see them, I'll just know that life with them, it'll be good. It'll be easy. It'll be wonderful. It'll be like I'm suddenly fulfilled for the first time in my life. I will live happily ever after. But the Bible has a lot of characters in it, and a lot of them are married, and so it describes a lot of marriages. And if I were to ask you, who in the Bible had the best marriage? 
Or if I would ask you, uh, who had the happiest marriage of all in the Bible? How would you answer? Adam and Eve? Well, I don't know. I mean, they weren't married that long before they started blaming one another, right? You know, you know it's the woman you gave me, I think, is something that was said. Or how about this, uh, Abraham and Sarah? You know, there wasn't long before Hagar was in the mix of that marriage. Uh, and what is more, there were several times when, you know, Abraham wasn't, he was less concerned about Sarah, let's say, than he was himself. He said, you know, as we go down to Egypt, I'm going to need you to pretend to be my sister, not my wife. I bet that created some tension. I bet there were a couple conversations around that. Uh, Isaac and Rebecca, that's an interesting one. You know, Isaac certain loved, certainly loved Rebecca. But if you know anything about that family and its dynamic, massive amounts of deception going on there. And the, the husband, Isaac, was all for Esau, you remember, and then his wife, Rebecca, was all for Jacob. And all kinds of tension and deception going on in the family. Uh, there's Jacob and Rachel. That's one that's interesting. Uh, we know that Jacob really loved Rachel. You remember what happened there. He worked for many years for her father just so that he could marry her, right? And uh, then he... Uh, wound up being tricked by his father-in-law, and he ended up marrying Leah, right, which is Rachel's sister. And later on, when the Mosaic Law was given, Leviticus 18, 18, this is one of, the, one of the Mosaic Laws. It's actually case law. It says, do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife. Where do you think that came from? I bet that came from, you know, experience. This doesn't work when you do this, you know, so don't do this. Uh, Jacob winds up marrying both sisters, eventually also even winds up marrying their concubines. You remember that? And this, this whole uh, kind of contest develops between Rachel and Leah to see which of the four women could bear Jacob the most children. You read that story, these were not really happy marriages. Not really. How about this one? Queen Esther and King Xerxes. That's got to be good, right? Queen married to a king. Oh, man, that's good, right? That would be so romantic. What a cool marriage that must have been. But you read the story and you discover uh, not everything was so great. Esther, of course, became queen because the previous queen, Vashti, uh, tried to assert her dignity when King Xerxes, in kind of a drunken stupor, decides to have Vashti brought out and paraded in front of his other drunken guests, right? And she says, no thank you to that. And what does he do? He divorces her. He sends her away, probably to never see her again. And Esther then is swept up in a beauty contest. She's one of hundreds of girls brought in to please the king. You get my drift? Nobody here gets my drift. <laughs> and they undergo beauty treatments for a year, and eventually they go to spend the night with King Xerxes. I mean, this is not the children's book version, but this is the biblical version, right? And the king, for whatever reasons we don't know, is impressed with Esther, and he makes her queen. And now Esther is just in a wonderful place at the top of the ladder of a harem of literally hundreds of other women that her husband will sleep with whenever he wants to. Yeah, that's really not a happily ever after scenario either, I don't think. In fact, in the Bible, not a single marriage ever delivers the happily ever after ending. Not one. I'll just be honest with you. I'll go to the conclusion of the message right now. We can go home and eat. Only Jesus delivers happily ever afters. Period. Okay? Only Jesus. 
And we only get tastes of that, glimpses of that now. The day we're really waiting for to come is when Jesus shows up, you know, in person and delivers the kingdom in all its fullness and remakes the heavens and the earth and us. And that's when we really get the happily ever after. Kind of an interesting thing. Uh, one book I, that I've recommended for uh, couples that are considering getting married for premarital counseling uh, is a book that says this. It says, according to the Bible, marriage does not exist to make you happy. That's totally counterintuitive and countercultural. Marriage does not exist to make you happy. It exists to make you holy. You see, it's there to make you like Jesus. It exists to knock off the rough edges, if you will. It exists so that God can make you more and more the kind of person he designed you to be. That's what marriage is for. Now, just know this, singleness can be used for that very same purpose by God. Marriage and singleness are tools that God uses for a person's spiritual formation. And we all need to hear this, I think. Because I'm going to tell you two little secrets. Don't let anyone know this outside this room. Just keep it right here. But if you are married, the most important thing for you to know about that person that you married is that you married a sinner. You can give them a little nod, kind of like, yeah, I know you're a sinner, you know. And the other little secret is, if you're married, is that the person you married married a sinner too. Now, they can look back at you and you kind of wink. That's the way to say, yeah, I know I'm a sinner too, you see. See, this is what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae about. He wrote these words. He said, when Christ, who is your life, you want abundant life, you want real life, you want meaningful life, you want eternal life, Christ, who is your life, appears. When he appears, then you will also, you will appear also with him in glory, in a state of glory it's talking about. Well, what is that? Sounds good. It's actually a fabulous idea. Paul is saying that really there are two kinds of yous. There is the current you, the sinful you, the very flawed, very messed up, very self-centered, often immature you. But then there's also this, this glorious you. There is you as God intended you to be. And that you, one day, will be all that's left of you. Are you with me so far? In other words, all that sin and all that junk will get purged away and you will be just the glorious you. Now, here's the thing. When you fall in love, part of what happens is you get a little glimpse of the glorious you of that person you've fallen in love with, right? I mean, you're in the courting period, right? They're on their best behavior. They're looking as good kind of as they can possibly look to you, right? You're getting a little glimpse of that glorious you that they have. And that's why falling in love is kind of a gift of grace. Uh, it's something that we don't exactly control. I mean, it's not purely a rational process. Part of what's going on is there's this glimpse of the glorious person that God created your future spouse to be. And it's glorious. It's great. It's, it's almost magnetic. You're just drawn to them. And you fall in love with them and you marry them. And when you marry them, who are you married to? The glorious them or the sinful them? Well, you know, unfortunately, both. You married the sinful them who's being transformed very slowly into the glorious them, all too slowly. And you get to see all of this up close and personal, right? And that means that you see the good, you see the bad. 
and you see the ugly. And the ugly is that junk, that flawedness, that stuff that makes doing life with them rather difficult. Now, again, the Bible is really clear about this. The Bible warns people quite a lot. Be really careful when it comes to choosing who you're going to marry. This is a big decision. I don't think there's one soulmate out there for you. It's going to make marriage magical or give you that happily ever after ending you're looking for. you got to make wise decisions in the marrying process. Proverbs 21 says, Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome spouse. Proverbs 27 says, A quarrelsome spouse is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Can you, can you hear that? Drip, 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 drip. Drip, it just doesn't stop, and it drives you crazy. Proverbs 14 says, A wise man fears the Lord and shuns evil, but a fool is hot-headed and reckless. You don't want to live with a fool for a spouse. Hot-headed and reckless. Proverbs 29 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger. They're breaking things and throwing things and slamming doors and putting fists through walls and that kind of nonsense. But a wise man keeps himself under control. The point is just this. Don't marry a quarrelsome, foolish spouse. That's a huge mistake, a costly mistake if you do. And the Bible's want about this, but it's very true. (laughs) It's like when I go to the dermatologist every once in a while. You know, I have this skin that the sun just bakes it. And, you know, you, you know, I'm all the time having to go to the dermatologist. And they have this magnifying glass and this really powerful light, you know. And they, they focus in on you. And as they do that, as the dermatologist is checking me out, my dermatologist has this annoying habit of going, hmm, mm, mm-hmm, mm, You know, and he just, again and again, it's, it's depressing. It's absolutely depressing. I mean, the reason we don't like to get close to people is they see stuff in us that we don't want them to see. And fact of the matter is, this is the human condition. Trying to keep people at a safe enough distance that they don't see something in us or about us that we don't want them to see. There's the old uh, kind of guy, noir, detective joke. You know, he sees a blonde and Uh, He says, you know, from 30 feet away, she looked like a lot of class, just a classy dame. From 10 feet away, she looked like something made up to be seen from 30 feet away. (laughs) And you see, that's the truth about all of us. We're all made up to be seen from about 30 feet away. We look pretty good from 30 feet away. But marriage is the great magnifying glass. Marriage is the flaw detector. All of your anxiety, all of your greed, all of your self-centeredness, laziness, your opinionated nature, your talkativeness, or your quietness, or your poutiness, or your jealousy, or your judgmental attitudes, all of that stuff gets exposed royally in marriage. You see that same stuff as well in your spouse. It's just drip, drip, drip. Am I right? Am I right? (laughs) You know, the current sinful me is on display in my marriage. Very slowly, all too slowly, becoming the glorious, sinless me. 
That's the task of marriage, don't you understand? If you think marriage is anything but that, you misunderstand it. And it will, it will surprise you that it doesn't lead to the happily ever after you want it to. Um, marriage is not primarily there to make you happy. It's there to make you holy. You're in a workshop if you're married. And you're with that partner. And you're just supposed to help each other see Jesus and move toward Jesus. Lovingly, patiently, thoughtfully, kindly, gently. So, anyway... Next statement. We'll come back to some of that in a moment. But the next statement, uh, we hear this quite a lot too in churches. Uh, it's very often said to single people. And this is what gets said or some version of it. You know, you just need to trust God and learn to be content in Him. And when you are, when you get to that place where you are content in Him, then God will work. And when He goes to work, He will bring you that perfect someone. That person you really miss. That person you're looking for. True? False? Maybe? I don't know. The perfect someone is kind of hard to find. You know, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge, too, that when we open the pages of the Bible, there's something in the New Testament that really plays with that kind of thinking. Really kind of chips away at that kind of thinking. Um, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, this is part of what he writes to that church. He's talking about marriage and he's talking about singleness. And this is what he says. He says, are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Woo, okay. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, you think? And I want to spare you this, he says. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short for this world in its present form is passing away. Now, you know, we read those words and kind of scratch our head. We think well, that's very interesting. But that's also very confusing. <laughs> is Paul having a terrible day? I mean, what's going on here? Is, is Paul just, he just doesn't like marriage. Is that, is that Paul? One New Testament scholar makes the point, a very interesting point, that something really unusual is happening here in this text. Uh, this new community, this thing called the church that Jesus created, is suddenly presenting a radically different point of view for the first time in the history of religious life. That's the point he makes. It's an interesting point. He says singleness, you see, is being presented as a viable way of life, as an honorable and even possibly fulfilling way of life. You know, in the ancient world, the cult or the religion was always a part of the state. There was no such thing as separation of church and state. Uh, the cult, the religion, was there to help provide the things that the state needed. And normally, the state needed families to produce children who would become workers, who would become soldiers, right? That's what the economy needed. That's what the state needed. And so looking back, that's just kind of the norm. So you have religious leaders like the Buddha, married. Uh, Confucius, married. Muhammad, married, had 13 wives, several of them under the age of 13. Uh, Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines, right? But then you come to Christianity, and all of a sudden, it's like a left turn. What happened? Here's the Messiah. Here's the Redeemer. Here's a rabbi who's not married. He's single. Who'd figure that out? You know, nobody expected that. And then there's Paul, the individual who's responsible for writing most of the New Testament, or much of it. 
And the Apostle Paul is single. What's going on, you have to ask. I'm glad you did. Um, here's what I think is going on. Christianity is de-idolizing marriage. It's telling the truth about marriage. Uh, Christianity is saying, and understand this is also very counter to the prevailing ideas that are out there still in our culture. Christianity is saying the marriage is not the road to the happily ever after. Jesus and Paul, they led joy-filled lives, amazingly meaningful lives of chaste singleness. It's so evident. Read about them. Uh, this changed, too, the way that single people were viewed, and it still does, or it ought to. A lot of times in churches, we struggle with, you know, what to do with single people. We want to get them married or something. And really, when we do that, we do a disservice to the reality that this is a legitimate option and a legitimate call for someone for serving and following Jesus, living their life much the way Paul or much the way Jesus did. There's one individual um, who writes about this call to singleness, and I, I thought it was beautifully written and well said. He writes this. He says, one man, uh, he says when I was first making uh, the decision to pursue singleness, there were stabs of pain as my heart realized I would never attend my child's soccer tournament, never kiss my wife goodnight. But from the grave of those dreams have risen better ones, he says. God is calling me to things I would never have been able to imagine or do as a married person. I gave up a good thing to God and found God will not be outgiven. How rich is that? He goes on to say, the church should remember this, that intentional singleness can be a gift to the person and a blessing to the single person's church or community. Therefore, single ministries in churches ought not be simply a ministry of matchmaking to the marriageable and a ministry of consolation to the rest. In church, we speak of seasons of singleness, often like terrible trials to endure. And if God is merciful, it will only be a temporary state. When single, Christians often ask God, why? And strive with the Almighty, like Jacob, I'm sorry, like Job. And yet for most of the church's history, our brothers and sisters who chose singleness were the exemplars, the spiritual superheroes. The ability to be single and satisfied in Christ is a great and powerful gift and one we should cultivate, celebrate, and use in the church. If you ask me what it's like to be intentionally unmarried, and I love what he says here, I'd say it's like Paul. Uh, it's like the angels. It's like the church in the resurrection. And best of all, it's like Jesus during his earthly ministry. Actually, he says, it's pretty great. How cool is that? I think that's a, a real eye-opener. What a great perspective. You see, there is a calling that can come from God to a celibate, single life and be used of God in ways that anyone married can't even imagine and can't do. And following that calling can lead one to do things and experience things and accomplish things that are not possible, just are not possible in the married condition. Now, I need to also say, that doesn't take away an ounce of pain from the person who is single and who is saying, my great desire is to have someone I can love and serve and have them love me back. That too is a calling. It's a legitimate desire. 
And when that desire goes unfulfilled, truth is, it just plain hurts. It just plain hurts. And to be truthful, I don't know why those desires sometimes aren't fulfilled. I don't. I know God is up to something, but I don't really have an answer to why. All I know is that ultimately the pain of every human being, pain in marriage, pain in singleness, will be taken away only by something far bigger and far better than singleness or marriage. We had better not think that marriage or singleness is the answer to our unhappiness. If you're thinking that, you are going to make someone really unhappy someday. Truthfully, only Jesus, only Jesus is that answer. As we follow him in and through whatever circumstances we happen to be in, whether that's marriage or singleness. Are you with me so far? Okay, we got 10 of these to get through, so it's going to take a while. Number three, if you're in a bad marriage and you pray hard enough, it will be healed. True, false, maybe, well, I hope so. I can tell you this, I sure would not stop praying. It's interesting that there were really bad marriages, of course, in the ancient world, just like there are today. In Jesus' day, some rabbis came to him. You can read about this in Matthew 19. And they come to him and they say this. They ask him this question. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? You know, in the ancient world, that certificate of divorce was a way of protecting women. In fact, in other cultures surrounding that period of time, this thing of a certificate of divorce was almost unheard of. There was a culture in the Assyrian, uh, kind of a derivative of the Assyrian culture, where a certificate of divorce was given to women. This, this certificate of divorce was to prevent the woman from being forever damaged goods and therefore literally unmarriageable. Uh, so these rabbis come to Jesus and they ask the question, why did, why did Moses command that? And it's interesting how Jesus corrects them. He says, Essentially, he says, no, 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 no. You got that wrong. Moses permitted, in other words, not commanded, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. The idea here is that even in situations where the rabbis would offer on the basis of Torah, on the basis of Scripture, grounds for biblical divorce, uh, even uh, those conditions that everybody understood, it was infidelity, it was desertion, it was things like a failure to provide for and, and to provide love and support. Jesus says, even there, you ought to seek reconciliation. You ought to try to heal a marriage. And I have to tell you, I've, I've seen marriages healed over time with God's help that at one time, man, looked like no life in them. I mean, I've seen God raise up marriages like that, bring life back to them. He can do that. He still does do that. Usually with godly counsel and various kinds of accountability and wisdom from Scripture and lots of support. But there are times, too, when one person is so hurt or their trust has been broken so deeply or there's one person in the marriage that's so hard-hearted or so stubborn or so persistent in refusing to re repent or refusing to change that divorce happens. And I want to say if you're a divorced person, you are not beyond the pale of God's love and God's forgiveness and God's redemption in your life. 
You know, sometimes this gets talked about in churches in very weird and I would say very unhelpful ways. I remember Ruth Graham uh, was being interviewed one time. This is the wife of the evangelist, uh, Billy Graham, still living. Um, Ruth Graham is not, but Billy Graham is. Uh, And I remember in that interview her saying one time that their marriage had been very difficult, very painful at times. You can well imagine he was always traveling, right? Who knew what part of the world he was in? Um, And you didn't have the ways to stay connected then that you have now. But it's a very difficult marriage. And uh, she was asked in that interview, did you ever consider divorce? And she was very open and honest. She said, no, I never considered divorce, but I, I thought about murder more than once, she said. <laughs> Some of you will know exactly what she's talking about, right? Now, here's the thing. There are churches that will teach that murder can be forgiven, but not divorce. If you murder somebody and then you repent, you can come back and you can serve in ministry. Uh, You can be in leadership. But if you ever get divorced, there are some churches that will tell you, well, then for the rest of your life, you're on plan B. There's no plan A open to you. And I just want to say that is not the teaching of the Bible. If you are divorced, you are not beyond the pale of God's love and God's forgiveness and God's grace. Number four, your unbelieving spouse will become a Christian if you pray enough. True? False? Maybe? You know, I sure wouldn't stop praying, ever. Uh, I've seen that happen in my own family. My my mom married a guy who was just a really good guy, really nice guy. If you knew him, his name was Vern. You couldn't help but, but uh, appreciate him and, uh, and like him. And, uh, and yet, he was somebody who didn't care much for God, didn't care much for religion. It was kind of like, that's okay with him if that's your thing. And I prayed for Vern, and mom prayed for Vern literally for decades. And uh, during most of that time, Vern was just not much interested. But then for some reason, in the latter years of his life, there was a warming that happened internally in, in his heart. He became interested in spiritual things. He started asking all kinds of spiritual questions. And late in his life, actually just a, a little over a year or so before he died, Vern actually became a follower of Jesus. It was really neat. It was just the coolest thing ever. But if I'm being honest, i got to tell you, there were years and years and years of praying and conversation and frustration uh, that went on prior to that. And if I'm honest, uh, I know of other situations where a spouse prayed and prayed for her husband fervently for years and for years, but her husband never decided to follow Jesus. He died just thinking, that's good, good for you. It's not anything I'm interested in, but you know, it's fine if it interests you. And I don't know why that happens. Honestly, there are many things that I don't know why they happen. But if I were in that situation, I would never stop praying. Because I I believe that God is up to something, you see. And I know, too, that the pain of single people and the pain of married people will get healed only through a God who went to a cross so he would know our temptations, our frustrations, and so that he would pay for our sin. I know that the sins of married people and the sins of single people only get forgiven on a cross where our God, Jesus, hung and died. 
I know two were a part of a community, a very interesting, very odd, very eclectic kind of community that Jesus created. Uh, for example, uh, one time uh, a woman is brought to him, um, or he actually encounters this woman at a well. She's been married five times. And uh, when he's talking with her, she's currently shacking up with guy number six. And Jesus says to her, in essence, you can read about this uh, in the Gospel of John. He, he says to her, you know, come be a part of my family. You need the water that only I can give you. And she does. He brings this woman right into his family, in spite of all these relationships. I know Jesus spoke to a woman one time who had been caught in adultery. Can you imagine? Caught in adultery. Drug out into the public, put on public display to make a point. And Jesus has a rather intimate conversation with her, which you could paraphrase. And he invites her into his family. And she comes in. I know Jesus said to prostitutes and married people and single people and Jews and Gentiles and slave and free and rich and poor, people with all kinds of badly, badly flawed track records, he said, come join my family, where you can be you, married, single, and where when problems feel like they are overcoming you, even big problems like being in a bad marriage or being in no marriage at all, you will discover, he said, that I have overcome the world. And you will know that it's not marriage or getting out of a bad marriage that will make things end happily ever after. You will discover that only I can do that. I'm the one who will make things end happily ever after. I have overcome the world, Jesus said. Now the Apostle John, the disciple that Jesus loved, he, uh, he reflected on that. And years later, he makes this statement about this idea of Jesus overcoming the world. And he includes us in it. He says, for everyone born of God, everyone who follows Jesus, everyone who has faith in Jesus overcomes the world. This is what he's talking about. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world. That's happily ever after, you see. That's what it means to overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So the point is, when you follow Jesus, when you join his family, your hope is linked to something far more significant, far more transcendent, far greater than singleness or being married. In fact, your story kind of reads like this. Once upon a time, a good God created the heavens and the earth, and then things got really ugly. A woman and a man ate the forbidden fruit, and in comes the curse and sin and death. And those things affect everything. Marriage got really messed up. Spouses blaming each other. Divorce is happening. Polygamy taking place, infidelity all over the place, cruelty, abuse, children paying the price in the midst of all this. Everything got dark, everything got twisted, everybody's life got very messed up. And people lived in this curse, spiritually asleep, spiritually dead, decade after decade, century after century. But then one day, another man comes along and he says, I'm starting a new family. And he invited everybody to join him. And he offered everybody forgiveness. And they killed him for this. What's interesting is he knew they would. And they hung him on a cross where he died for sin. 
And when he was dead, they put him in a tomb. And he was there three days. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And this new movement got started because of him. Um, It hasn't ended yet. It will end one day when he comes back. This movement that he's begun. This this citizenship in a new kingdom that he created. You see, when the prince comes back and claims his bride, what interesting language we have in the Bible. You know, the church is the bride of Christ. And we look for the prince to come back and to return and to claim his bride. And then there's going to be the, the great wedding supper of the Lamb that takes place. Feasting and celebration, and joy, unspeakable. And you know, it's then, right then, that we will discover happily ever after. Right then. And you see, that's the Christian's hope. And that can be your hope. You know, if you are here this morning and you're in the midst of some trauma, some difficulty, it can be anything from painful singleness to painful marriage and anything in between. Or if you, when you hear us talking about these things this morning, somebody comes to mind and you think, wow, the pain that my friend must be in, the pain that my child must be in. And there's prayers that you want prayed for their singleness or for their marriage. You know, I I would encourage you to pray those prayers this morning. In fact, if you want, I would even encourage you to come up after the service and myself and elders can be up here. We'll pray for you. We'll pray with you in this. Um, And the reason we pray is there's always hope when we pray. We have a God who cares and a God who listens and a God who can bring about change. He doesn't always do that, but he does often. And so we pray. I'm going to invite you right now to pray with me as I ask the team to come back up here. Uh, Afterwards, I'll be down here. And again, I'd love to pray with you if if, uh, you fit that description. And there will be others who will be up here with me to pray as well. So pray with me now. Whatever is in your heart, when you think about your situation, your singleness or your marriage, uh, maybe what you feel is gratitude. Maybe you feel fulfillment. You feel joy. And right now you just want to tell God. Tell Him thank you. We're in this season of the year where giving thanks is so appropriate. We're being encouraged to think about how to thank Him. But maybe when you think of those things, singleness, your marriage, or what have you, it just conjures up hurt or sadness or bitterness. Maybe what you need is the ability to forgive and you can't really do it on your own. And you need prayer so that you can forgive. Or maybe it's guilt that comes to mind and what you need is the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Or maybe what you wrestle with is that unanswered prayer thing and you can't fix it again. I would say you need prayer. God, I pray for everybody who's gathered here with us this morning right now that you would come into them and speak to them and bring your healing, forgiving love. Any decisions that need to get made today, God, decisions to begin again or to offer forgiveness or to step into the light or to reaffirm a commitment. 
decisions to say, I love you, God, would you help? Help that person to make that decision right now. Thank you for the hope that is ours far beyond singleness or marriage. That hope that tells us that we will live happily ever after. We look forward to your coming, Prince Jesus. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.